I thought I'd just dive right in because the challenge that we face in healthcare, that is, we wish it were more affordable and accessible and higher in quality and, and effectiveness, isn't a problem that's unique with healthcare. Literally every industry in the world has run into these problems at some point in the past. And there is a pattern that is just pervasive in how, how these problems have been overcome in other industries. And uh, Richard and I did a piece, my gosh, maybe 12 years ago, 13 years ago, where we saw the pattern beginning in healthcare as well. And so I'd like to describe what we have seen there. And then hopefully in our discussion, we could talk about how a good idea actually can get uh, implemented. So what I'd like to describe here is a model for how this happens. And I want you to focus first on these circles. And what they represent is in the middle, these are customers or in healthcare patients who have the most money and the most skill. And then the larger circles represent larger populations of people who have less money and less skill until you come to the periphery where you don't have much of either and where I have lived most of my life. And the challenge is, how do we get things from here to here? So the model by which it happens, I'll put on the vertical axis the performance of a product or service over time. There are two elements of this model. The first is in every market, there's a trajectory of improvement that innovating companies provide. Now, some of these innovations that make good products better are incremental. Others are dramatic breakthrough investments. What we find is that the companies that, that are the leaders of the industry on the left side, after all of these improvements are done, find themselves still the leaders on the right side. In other words, the existing providers see it coming and are on top of the challenge. Then there's a second trajectory, which is the ability of customers to use technology. And always, the trajectory to provide technology overshoots the ability to use it, which then it, it creates interesting problems. But what it means is that a company whose products are not good enough for what customers in the mainstream market might need at one point in time, find themselves overshooting what they can use at a later point in time. So that's the model. Now, what we find is that these kinds of innovations that we call sustaining innovations are pervasive. This is what we think about the most. And almost always, as I mentioned, the incumbents dominate the battles of making good products better. But there's another type of technology that we call disruptive technology. And we use the word disruptive not because it, it's a breakthrough improvement, but rather it changes a product that is complicated and expensive into something that is affordable and simple. And what we found is that on this dimension of innovation, almost always the leaders here miss this and it's entrants that come in to make things affordable and accessible. And let me just describe now the reason why 
the leaders here find it so hard to make it affordable and accessible. And the reason why that's important is that when we want to make healthcare affordable and accessible, what it says is, on average, we ought to plan on these, by, these people doing it, not those. So there's a company in the Boston area that no longer exists, but it was called Digital Equipment Corporation. And through the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, digital equipment was probably the most widely admired of all of the companies in the world. When you ran explanations about why digital was so successful, always it was attributed to the brilliance of their management team. They really were good. But in about 1988, digital equipment just fell off the cliff and began to unravel very quickly. And when you then read explanations about why digital equipment had stumbled so broadly, it was attributed to the ineptitude of the management team. And it's the same people running the company on both sides of the hill. So for a while, I framed the question as, gosh, I wonder how smart people could get stupid so fast. But the reason why that uh, bad manager hypothesis just didn't feel right is that the product that they were making that we called mini computers, every company that made mini computers in the world collapsed in unison. It wasn't just digital equipment, but Data General, Prime, Wang, Nixdorf, Hewlett-Packard, Honeywell. And you'd expect these people occasionally to collude on price, but to collude to collapse was a stretch. <laughs> and there just had to be something going wrong there. And we don't remember these mini computers very well, but if you go way back, those of you who have gray hair, the first uh, generation of technology we called mainframe computers that filled the whole room. And then the next we called mini-computers, and they were about the size of that podium there. Um, a mainframe cost $2 million. This cost $200,000. And uh, that's what Digital and their com compatriots made. Now, it was really expensive and costly, and so it had to be sold direct to the customer, and the customer the, the selling process involved a lot of training, support, service, and, and, and uh, software. And you just had, you had to have those costs in the business to play in the game. And so digital equipment had to generate gross margins of about 45% to cover the overhead costs that was inherent in making that size of computer. Now, through the 1980s, the man, management, the people who worked at digital, all of the time, we're approaching senior management with ideas to make better products. Some of these entailed making better computers than they had ever made before. In fact, these are almost going to compete against the mainframes. When you looked at the business plans, they promised gross margins of 60%, and you could earn 60% on twice as much money. So the management was trying to figure out, should we do this? Well, they're deliberating on that, other people were coming into senior management saying, ladies and gentlemen, would you please look out the window in the 80s? Everybody's buying personal computers. Can't you see it? 
Well, the management would go to the window, and in fact, they could see that everyone was buying personal computers, but they could see a few troubling things about the personal computer. One of them was, do you remember how crummy those early personal computers were? In fact, Apple sold the Apple II as a toy to children. Not a single one of Digital's customers could even use a personal computer during the first 10 years. And that meant that the more carefully they listened to their customers, they got no signal from their customers that the personal computer mattered because, in fact, it didn't to them. And then when they looked at the business plans, it looked a lot worse because in the best years, their gross margins were 40%. They headed to 20% quickly. And when they sold the computer, they only got $2,000 rather than $250,000 versus $500,000. And so the, the choice that the man, management had to make at digital equipment was, huh, I wonder if we should make better products that we could sell for better profits to our best customers. Alternatively, Maybe we ought to use our money to make worse products that none of our customers could buy that would ruin our margins. What should we do? <laughs> and the problem is that the right thing is the wrong thing. And the wrong thing is the right thing, you know. And it truly, we call this the innovator's dilemma. And that's the reason why these guys find it so difficult to make things affordable and accessible because, in fact, it doesn't make sense to them. And smart people have a very hard time doing things that make no sense. So, how would you get healthcare affordable and accessible? Well, here I was, you know, living my life in the periphery, and our doctor made house calls through the 1950s. But then the advent of sophisticated technology drove a centralization of the healthcare industry. And I put their uh, general hospital in computing, that would be a mainframe. And this is driven by the sophistication and the costliness of, of advanced technology. So the question is this. I wonder if healthcare will become affordable and accessible by hoping that the hospitals will become cheap. Or will it become affordable and accessible by having the specialists who work there to step forward and unilaterally agree to take pay cuts? I'm not sure that's going to work. But rather what we have to ha do is disrupt them by make things affordable and accessible so that larger populations can have access to better care, not worse care. And so we need to bring technology to the clinics so that they can start to do there the simplest of the things that today have to be addressed in a hospital. But then we have to keep driving technology into that venue so that they can do more and more sophisticated things. And then we need to bring technology to the doctor's offices and then uh, retail clinics so that people can do there the simplest of the things that had to be done in the clinic. But then we have to keep driving the technology so that they can do ever more sophisticated things. And then ultimately, we need to bring technology to the patient's homes.
And you see this happening a little bit. For example, in dialysis. I have a close friend who's been on dialysis for two decades. And I remember when he was diagnosed, he had to go to the hospital because the technology was very temperamental and very complex and costly. And then the technology improved so that you could move it into clinics because it was much more regimental uh, so that a technician could do it. And now he's got a little do uh, machine like this that they do it at home. And it is so much better and so much lower in cost. And in a similar way, rather than expecting the specialist to become cheap, we need to drive technology into the practice of personal care doctors so that they can do ever more sophisticated things rather than needing to refer this all to the more expensive specialist. And then bring technology to nurse practitioners and the pharmacists so that they can start to do more and more of the things that previously had to be addressed by a personal physician. And then we need to bring technology to the primary care providers. And so if there's just one thing that I hope that you remember from Clay's conversation with you today, it is this, that rather than expecting healthcare to become affordable by expecting the existing providers to become cheap, we need to bring technology so that lower cost venues of care and lower cost caregivers can do more sophisticated things. That's the way to do it. Maybe a, a way to view this is if you just take this at another level, this is the top of the, t the hill, and then it goes down. And it might think to you that when you go to these lower levels, that the quality of care is not as good as what you can get here. But if you can think of that as it goes downhill, that actually what happens is the technology levels it so that it enables people at this level to do more sophisticated things so that it is as good as that they could receive there. And then the patients go over to that one. And then when it happens here, the patients can move over without... Uh, uh, I had a stroke a couple of years ago and I lost my ability to speak. And that's what you see happening here. As the, the technology gets better the patient doesn't have to have a reduction in the quality of care. And a good way to think about it if we went back to computers is the personal computer is not nearly as good as the mini computer. And people who made mini computers just waited. And then when the personal computer got good enough, then they just came over. And that's what, we'll, what we will see happening here thanks to technology. Let me just offer a way to think about how this works. So by analogy, 80 years ago, if you wanted to have a new molecule that would use to synthesize synthetic fibers, there were about 50 people in the whole world who could build these molecules, and DuPont employed almost all of them. And the way these artists made these molecules was they would just reach down and pull up the most experience and education and intuition that they could find.
Then they would pour a bunch of atoms in a beaker, stir it up, heat it up, pull out a fiber, look at it under a microscope, go down the hall, knock on a colleague's door and say, would you look at this? Have I in invented anything interesting? And she would say, I have no idea, but bring it in. Let's heat it up for 10 more minutes and see what happens. These master molecules that we call Nevlon, nylon, polyester, acetate, and Kevlar emerged from a process at DuPont through what was essentially an intuitive, problem-solving, trial-and-error process. And nobody could play in that game but DuPont because there were so few people who had these properties. But as those artists practiced the craft, patterns began to emerge. And when it moved into a pattern recognition realm, they could start to teach other people how to build these molecules. And there was not a cookbook yet. They could express the outcomes of an action in probabilistic ways. And that meant that a lot more companies got into the game. But then there were theories that became better understood and applied, like quantum theory and rate theory. And when there were these theories, which are statements of causality, what causes what and why, the experts could then build models in software. These models would allow you to predict in advance whether it was possible to build a molecule that had these properties or not. And because you can predict in advance what the properties of these things were, it was really quite remarkable because you didn't have to be one of the experts anymore to play in the game. You just had to have a master's degree from a public university and a great piece of software, and you could build better molecules faster and at lower cost than the world's experts could do a generation ago because it, really what happened is that organic chemistry had moved from an intuitive trial and error mode into a rules-based mode. So tonight, before you go to bed, this I'm serious about this, just stand in the room and turn around 360 degrees and be observant because you will be able to put your eyes or your fingers on 10 to 12 different fibers in that room that have been an unmitigated blessing in our lives in terms of their durability, their cost, their appearance, their flexibility. But these blessings did not come to mankind by replicating the skills of DuPont scientists, but rather we have commoditized their skills through scientific advance. And that's why we can have such wonderful things that are so good at such low cost is that they have gone across that spectrum in these materials. So, same thing is at work in healthcare. And right now, much of healthcare, or at least historically, had been delivered through in intuitive medicine in the same way, trial and error. And the reason for the trial and error historically is the problem with our bodies is that our bodies have a limited vocabulary that our bodies can draw upon to express to the world that something has gone wrong inside. And our body's vocabulary are symptoms. And there really are just not enough symptoms to go around for all of the diseases that exist. 
And so the diseases had to get together and agree to share symptoms. And that means that if a patient presents herself to the doctor, the doctor looks at this and says, well, I understand what the symptoms are, but what's causing it is very unclear. And very often they have to develop hypotheses, test them. It doesn't work, it does work. And because of that, historically, we needed to give the care to the same equivalent of this DuPont scientist, where they can reach in and pull out the best of their education and experience and intuition to give the best guess possible and then try it and refine it. But thank goodness, healthcare has not stayed there. But rather, there has been a lot of progress as we move into what we call empirical medicine. Others might call it evidence-based. And just as a good example, I am suffering from lymphoma, which is this cancer that I was diagnosed with about three years ago. And uh, I had three very big tumors inside. And when these were discovered, my uh, doctor took a biopsy from this and then put it in a slide. And two days later, invited me back to Mass General Hospital. And he went through and he said, you probably didn't know this, but there are 37 types of lymphoma. And, uh, you know, this is yours. This is the reference. You don't have any of these, but look, as we get into the high teens, it's looking more and more like you, and oh my gosh, look, number 23, yours fits the pattern very closely. And so this is what I think we should do. And it describes the chemotherapy that they put me through. And he said, if we follow this, there's about a 76% a probability that five years from now, you will, your cancer will be in remission. And so he couldn't say anything about Clay Christensen, could he? He could just express the probability of the result from this cause. And that's a wonderful thing. But when he could then say, but for you, Clay Christensen, because we understand what causes this to happen, it moves into what we call a precision medicine, where if we understand what causes the symptom, then we, we can develop a predictably effective therapy for that. And we have some diseases that have gone through this process. Now, I describe these as stages. In reality, it's a process. But year by year, step by step, disease by disease, we move from the left to the right, and this movement is what enables nurses to be able to provide care that is equivalent or better than the best doctors could today by using the technology that enables lower-cost venues of care and lower-cost caregivers to do more sophisticated things. Hospitals aren't possible. And the reason is that in every hospital, the value proposition that hospitals make to mankind is, I actually don't care what's wrong with you. Bring it here. We will actually do anything for anybody. And that is a very complicated value proposition. That There are actually no other institutions in the world that claim that they could solve every 
problem for everybody. And in fact, in order to try to do this, there are within a typical hospital three types of businesses. And there are actually only three types of business models in the world. They are all incompatible with each other, but they exist in a hospital. So the first type of business model we call a solution shop. And a solution shop business is in the business of telling you what's wrong and giving you uh, recommendations. So some of you have, might have had a wonderful experience with McKinsey and Company or Bain or BCG. And these guys are solution shop companies. You pay them a ton of money. They then will tell you what's wrong with your company and how to fix it. The activities in a hospital that entail diagnosing the problem and then recommending a solution are solution shop businesses. And these kinds of businesses make money on a fee-for-service basis. So occasionally Bain and Company, one of the consultancies, have told their clients, look, I'll cut a deal with you. You give me a fee which is roughly half what we normally and, and if you'll then just give us a proportion of the benefit of implementing our recommendations, let's try that. Never works. Because the outcome depends on so many things besides the quality of their recommendations that they always have to punt and say, look, just give me a fee for service. Now, I'll give you an example of what one of these looks like. This friend of mine, Dave Snow, I used to be the CEO of Medco, which is the largest pharmacy in America, and then they sold it out, and a rich man became richer. That's another story. Poor Dave suffered from asthma his entire life, and asthma is in what we would call the realm of intuitive medicine. Wheezing is a symptom that is shared by, who knows, eight or so different diseases. And he had it bad. So as his parents and then as an adult, as he personally tried to get this problem solved, he had seen dozens of specialists. And in his language, everyone had added to, subtracted from, or multiplied the number of drugs he was taking. At one point, it cost him more than $1,000 a month, and nothing worked. And then Dave thought about this concept, and he realized there's a solution shop in Denver called the National Jewish Medical Center, and they're organized to do exactly this for pulmonary and respiratory diseases. So Dave flew out there, and on the first day, they gave him a standard battery of tests, and on the second day, they put him in a room, and in walked four specialists. And he had met these types of specialists many times before, but he had seen them individually. This is the first time the whole body were there. And they started to argue with each other. And then they'd look at the data and argue again and ask Dave questions and argued some more. And after about 30 minutes, the leader of the group said, Dave, I think we figured it out. The reason why none of these drugs has ever helped you is you don't have any of those types of asthma. You got this type. Lucky for you, there's just a generic drug that's going to solve your problem. So we want you to stay here another day. 
we'd like to stress test your body, but we're quite certain that this is going to work. And it did. So Dave was going back to New Jersey the next day, and he was thinking about this experience. Why had he never seen four of those people convene at one point, all focused in him? And the reason was that to do that in a typical hospital would take six months of planning. But this was a hospital that was organized to convene people when you need to have the multiple perspectives on an intuitive disease. And then Dave's second question was, huh, I wonder if it was cheap or costly to get the precise diagnosis in Denver, not in New Jersey. And he realized it is dirt cheap. Because how many tens of thousands of, of dollars on meeting with people and uh, trying the wrong uh, drugs has, have they wasted? And in this, as in many instances, the precision of a diagnosis has value that is inquantifiable. We don't invest in that because there are very few solution shops that are taken out of a hospital. Very quickly, the second type is an insurance, is a process business, where you bring stuff in, you do stuff to it, and then you ship it out. And of course, manufacturing looks like that, but education is a process business. We bring in 900 very incomplete humans to the Harvard Business School every fall, and then every day we do stuff to them. And then after two years, we ship them perfected to Wall Street. <laughs> and once you have what's the, you know what the problem is, a medical procedure is a process business. These guys make money on a fee for service. They make money on a fee for outcome. And if you do it this way, instead of messing up the process with all of the stuff that goes on in a solution shop atmosphere there, boy, you can do it cheaper. And so the Shoulders Hospital north of Toronto, all they do is make hernia repair. And they can do a quality outcome that is 12x better than the typical hospital in Boston at 35% of the cost. Because in a hospital, because of the complexity, 85% of the cost is overhead cost because they're trying to do everything to everybody. And when you harness or d d divide them out, then it's not direct cost that is reduced, it's the overhead. And then the last type of business we call a facilitated network, where essentially the patients help each other. And a lot of diseases that are chronic in character, the patients can actually give better guidance to, to fellow patients. They make money on a fee-for-service basis. So there are a few other thoughts that I wanted to share with you. Thank you.